In the summer of May 2004, my family and I celebrated my brother's graduation from McGill University. I remember the date because we went to see Shrek 2 in the cinema. I was 20 years old at the time. After the ceremony, my brother and I arranged to visit our extended family in Long Island, as we did every year, and opted for the 10-hour Adirondack train ride that extended from Montreal to New York. It was breathtaking. The summer had been perfect, and I couldn't imagine anything putting a damper on such poignant memories. Until we reached the border. Crossing into the United States, a stern customs and immigration officer by the name of Gonzalez snatches our passports and with a cursory glance, confiscates the documents and leaves us in our seats for 15 minutes with no updates as to why. Upon returning, he proceeds to ask our history, indicating to each brother that they remained silent while the other spoke. Date of birth, program of study, place of birth, where we were going, why we were going. We had just been publicly singled out and held up an entire train of passengers for more than 30 minutes, and until this very day, I do not know why. In the summer of May 2004, for the first time in my life, I understood what it meant to be traveling while Arab. In the previous episodes of Traveling While Arab, we explored what it's like to be profiled upon entry to the United States through the experiences of Arab tourists and dual citizens alike. But what about those who are actively working on obtaining citizenship, rightfully jumping through the hurdles of bureaucracy with the hopes of securing a better future in the embrace of the American dream? And what is it exactly that these Arabs might be fleeing? Today, we'll be turning the tables and speaking with Iraqi social media campaign strategist Haider Hamzouz, currently residing in the United States, reflecting on the consequences of embracing freedom of speech in Iraq and his life in the U.S. We'll also converse with Guthrie award-winning human rights expert Professor Reem Badi about the threats to freedom of expression created by unbalanced legislations in North America. My name is uh, Haider Hamzouz. I'm a blogger originally from Iraq. I live in the United States now. I work in social media field, campaign strategies, and doing uh, social media things. In my first cold call over Zoom to Haidar, we became fast friends. Haidar is soft-spoken, disarming, and humorous. But he is anything but timid, and his history proves it. For the past 15 years, Haidar has been dedicated to bolstering support for freedom of speech within Iraq, creating the Iraqi Network for Social Media, a coalition of bloggers and citizen journalists. With almost 100,000 followers on Twitter, he is a political source to be reckoned with, and it shows. Consistently pushing back against increasingly stifling draconian measures in his home, Haider moved with his family to the United States in 2015. I felt that the space that I have to express myself is very limited back in 2015 now it's impossible <laughs> uh, to uh, like to express about yourself just be, uh, and you will be killed uh, as an example if you back to Iraq just because of, your, of an opinion or a different opinion shared uh, on social media in our previous episodes we spoke about the potential possibility of being detained searched and severely inconvenienced by customs and border patrol officers upon arrival to the United States but as he mentions, the stakes for Haider are higher, much higher, each time he returns to Iraq. 
Eloquent, outspoken, and credible, Hydra has garnered a reputation for himself as a government dissident and practices strict standards of precaution whenever he returns. In 2019, Haider quietly returned to Iraq to cover the October protests. I start to less tweeting, uh, less posting before two weeks from my visit. And during the visit, I put everything, my computer, my phone behind me. I came without anything. You know, uh, just an old phone, not a smartphone. Because in Iraq, it's easy take his phone, take his computer, any like uh, reason or law behind that. So I went there without announcing, of course. Even my mom, she don't know about my visit. Only my wife, she knows about my visit. And I, 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 I sit with my wife and I put a plan with her. If you don't hear from me in two hours, we need to follow this step. So I put like a whole emergency plan for her. And no one knows I'm in Iraq until I left. You know, I couldn't post anything like I'm here, I'm living here. And I wish to do that. But they killed my voice during my visit. They, they attacked my father after my visit. They destroyed his car. They reached his car and they destroyed because they know that I visited Iraq without capturing me or, or, or at least attacked me. They are because capture is not their language. They, the killing is their language. Haida's heart-wrenching revelation to me about his father's attack serves to solidify the reality of his situation. That detention, abduction, and torture of numerous protesters has become increasingly regular since the ousting of Saddam Hussein and the U.S. occupation, allowing oligarchs and militias to claim total control and shows no sign of stopping. Since the ongoing October revolutions reignited mass protests in 2019, a United Nations report places the reactionary death toll by unnamed militias at almost 500 people, with 8,000 wounded and 25 unaccounted for until today. It is here that Haida's power in numbers on Twitter and Facebook becomes a boon, a weapon of mass information used to swiftly assemble protests, rectify false or misleading media, and ensure accountability to those who would have easily hid from responsibility before the birth of social media. But where there are humans in the throngs of thousands who speak out against atrocities, there are even more bots and paid militias who use social media as a tool to spread misinformation, provoke violence, and drown out real change. The government and the militias behind the government, if they can't reach you to kill you physically, they have an electronic army to kill you on social media. At the same time, the funny thing, you see many, many profiles of ISIS promoting for their terrorism goals and ideas on social media, especially on Twitter. Imagine. So they are free and they have a, a profile since 2014 till now. Recently, some action has been taken by social media giants in an attempt to stem the flow of misinformation and creation of extremist groups. In 2019, for example, the AFP, Agence France-Presse, expanded its fact-checking partnership with Facebook to debunk stories shared in Arabic across the world. Facebook also removed 259 accounts, 102 pages, 5 groups, and 17 Instagram accounts practicing coordinated inauthentic behavior subsequently linked to 13.7 million users. During the second half of 2018, Twitter removed 166,000 accounts for violations related to promotion of terrorism, 
91% being flagged by internal technological tools. Yet even with these efforts, many extremist groups managed to slip by. And the situation is further aggravated when the country in question itself is creating the framework for the stifling of free flow and democratization of information. Since 2012, we are in a big argument with the government to stop issuing a draft law named cyber, cyber crimes law. So one of the articles said, if you create a website or you managed a website or you published a content on internet uh, and this website damaged the image of the Iraqi state, you will be in prison for not less than 20 years and you will need to also pay not less than $20,000 for making this crime. So imagine someone create a website and that's it his service or her service ended and delivered that website to this person. Even the developers will be punished under this law. In a time where the majority of personal secrets, e-commerce data, military intelligence, and state information is stored online, no one is questioning the need for an objective cybercrime law to protect the interests of personal and state security. However, getting there requires a great deal of caution to avoid falling in the quagmire that is the silencing of freedom of expression and freedom of assembly. Although freedom of speech is protected under Article 38 of Iraq's 2005 constitution, the proposed Iraqi cybercrimes law would operate as a retroactive law essentially punishing the use of any computer device or information network to undermine the independence of the country, its peace, or its economic, political, military security. Nobody really knows what that means. And Hadak is not alone in its mishandling of such a dangerous, broad, and vague tool. Jordan walks a tight line of potentially unarming a cybercrime law, which includes a worryingly broad definition of hate speech as writing to provoke sectarian or racial sedition, and would prosecute people who engage in fake news or rumors, even though the bill does not contain a definition as to what that entails. Party to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Jordan's current proposed cybercrime law failed to meet the standards governing freedom of expression when it was initially proposed in 2010 and has yet to fulfill them. In today's world, the ability and freedom to express opinions on social platforms that reach millions of people walks a tightrope of either allowing the natural evolution of a culture through disagreement and discussion, or the extinguishing of conversation, both through our own echo chambers and filter bubbles, and state regulations placed on us through mass data collection and subjective blanket laws that instill a fear of speaking openly. And although we can easily shake our heads at the missteps of certain Arab nations wrangling with basic conceptions of human rights, it would be hypocritical to think that North America has a handle on the situation. Professor Riembadi clarifies the turning point of mass data collection in Canada. Just after September 11th, there was some, what was called at the time Bill C-36 or the Anti-Terrorism Act. And so one of the things that that piece of legislation it brought in was the idea of preventative measures. So it normalized the idea that surveillance, preventative arrest are legitimate tools that not only can but should be used in today's world. And so I think that was the grain of suggesting that there are certain circumstances in which um, human rights as we've understood them uh, don't matter. 
what we're doing there is we're creating a regime where anybody, theoretically anybody, is dispensable. And you don't know who it's going to happen to next, although there are, of course, certain individuals and certain communities who are um, at higher risk of being singled out. Part of these certain individuals and certain communities are the countries which have been at odds with the current U.S. administration, namely Arabs like Haidar. The first time he arrived in 2015 with his family, papers in order, he was held for eight hours while his infant daughter and wife waited at the luggage carousel with no way to reach him. Now, he informs me that he expects to wait at least two hours for processing every time he returns to the United States. This, he believes, may very well be due to his social media activity, although we can't say for sure. I don't know because of my background, because I'm originally from Iraq, or maybe because of my social media activity, or I don't know why why that's happening to me till now. And I start like... Um, uh, start uh, upset and hate to travel. Believe me, hate to travel because of that situation. Part of the issue, I think, Temer, is that we actually don't know what's uh, what's out there and what's being what's being tracked and how it's being tracked or by whom it's being tracked. Um, and that's part of the problem: is the regulatory space, the legal space. Um, and we also don't know what's happening at borders and at uh, airports in terms of the type of technology that's being used and what what is being searched. So are they using facial recognition? Is it, it how well does it function? These things are all happening behind uh, a veil of secrecy. And that's part of the problem, not just from a personal privacy perspective, but from a larger societal perspective. Both Reem and Haider agree that though not as blatant as some of the diminished rights being whittled away in some Arabic countries, North America itself has been slowly struggling to define what constitutes free speech versus hate speech. Facebook and Instagram already display a habit of seemingly arbitrary decision-making to remove certain posts that defy their community standards, although there is no clear definition as to what those standards are. The recent removal of supermodel Bella Hadid's Instagram post displaying her father's factual Palestinian passport for going against community standards is just one example of something that was wrongfully and painfully implemented. Reem argues that pro-Palestinian rhetoric, although not outright illegal, is slowly being discouraged and strangled, causing a chilling effect to freedom of expression by negative association. Even though formally we have freedom of expression, the reality is very different. Speaking out, for example, about Palestine is considered a risk, right? It's considered an indicator of potential terrorist activities. And so people think about you know, the ways in which just expressing an opinion and not even uh, an objectionable opinion, just expressing an opinion about Palestinian rights or about Canadian policy on Palestine, they are in fact taking a risk. And the only question is, what's the magnitude of that risk? Is it a risk that's going to put them on some sort of flagged list by CSIS? Or is it going to be a risk where they're just not going to be considered for a position or a job if they have aspirations to become a policy advisor, for example? 
after September 11th, one of the things that happened is that groups now started to be listed, right, as terrorist groups. We didn't have that kind of regime before. And one of the criticisms was, how do you determine who's actually a member of a group? Like Hamas, for example, if you live in Gaza and you go to a particular school because that's the school that's in your neighborhood and it's been built and funded by Hamas, are you a member of Hamas? At the time of this episode's release, North America faces one of the most volatile and pivotal times in the defense of freedom of expression, speech, and right to assemble in its young history, teetering on the edge of collapse. Social media platforms, currently at odds with the Trump administration, are fulfilling the public role of combating dangerous and potentially deadly false information related to COVID-19. Former KKK clans leaders, white supremacists, and other, quote, very good people are offered platforms to speak and a place in government, while pro-Palestinian restaurants are being defaced and attacked and the Palestinian map is literally being erased by Google. Like brown shirts at a Nazi rally, Trump's administration is tumbling down a dark path of oppression by sending non-identifiable federal forces to quell protesters who have legitimate cause to assemble, criticize, and voice their dissatisfaction. Make no mistake, We are not headed towards the potential deafening of our cries of injustice. We are already there. And while the Arabs in this series represent only a small voice, when joined with the voices of other opponents of tyranny, a collective consciousness can be molded to be heard through the noise and to remind us of why we continue to oppose. The freedom to live equally. The freedom to live happily. Freedom. I named my second daughter Hurrah. That's mean, I don't want to say uh, liberal to, to translate Hurra, but she's a free, you know, free girl. So that's why I named her Hurra, to always remember she's Hurra. Uh, she's not guided by other people. She's a free girl. She can decide what she wants. I'm Tamar Gargour, and this is Traveling While Arab.